how God was seeking a bride for his son. Each book is different from every other book. I'm trying to give you the keys for you to unlock it for yourself. You're listening to Unlocking the Bible by David Pawson. Visual materials featured in this talk can be found online at davidpawson.org. This is 1st and 2nd Corinthians, part 2. We haven't finished 1 Corinthians yet, but before we press on, let me just mention one very important thing. Because it was uh, a city in Greece, even though it was Roman basically, it was in Greece and very much influenced by Greek language, Greek thinking, Greek philosophy. As we all are in Western civilization, our basic thinking is Greek. Democracy is a Greek word. There's no democracy in the Bible, whatever, but we all love democracy. It's Greek and uh, sport came from Greece. There's nothing about sport in the Bible except for one or two illustrations in Paul. There's nothing telling you about sport, yet sport is the religion of the men of this country, and it came from Greece, from Olympia in the Peloponnese. And uh, so many things come to us from Greek, and the worst thing about the Greek thinking was that they always separated the physical and the spiritual. They could never get those two things together and therefore they had no real place for the body. Body and soul were two separate things, and I'm afraid Christian thinking has picked up that Greek idea that our job is saving souls. Well, the Hebrew never thought like that. The Hebrew thought of a person as a whole person, body and soul together. One thing, to them a soul was a breathing body, which is the origin of SOS, save our souls, meaning save our bodies. And that's Hebrew thinking. So the real problem behind a lot of these problems at Corinth was their thinking about the body as somehow not connected with the soul. And getting into kind of super-spirituality that only thinks of the soul and what happens inwardly, whereas the body is as much part of me as my spirit. God created both, and that's why the Greeks believed that at death your body disintegrated and your soul was free and they talked about an immortal soul in a mortal body, whereas Hebrew thinking is exactly the opposite, that we have a mortal soul and need an immortal body. So when this mortal puts on immortality, then death is swallowed up in victory. The body is very important. The Christian does not believe in the immortality of the soul, that's Greek. We believe in the resurrection of the body, that's Hebrew. And it is their attitude to the body that they couldn't get right behind a lot of these questions. And the body and the soul were kept separate. So the Greeks did one of three things with their bodies. They either indulged them and said, no matter what you do with your body, it doesn't affect your soul, or they ignored them and tried to live a life free from physical desires, a kind of asceticism, or they idolized their body and made statues of the perfect body. And that's got into our Western culture. If you've seen the Greek statues, the, their sports were in the nude because they idolized the body. And all these are wrong attitudes to the body. And Paul has to say to the Corinthians, don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? And what you do with your body will affect your soul. And getting drunk at the Lord's table is affecting your spiritual life. And visiting prostitutes is affecting you. are actually joining Christ to that prostitute because your body is part of Christ now. See, it's their attitude to the body 
that they hadn't got right. And that's why they had such problems believing in the resurrection, because that's of the body. And still today, people have problems with things of the body when our bodies are part of what God made us to be. In the Jewish book of prayer, there's a lovely prayer to use when you go to the toilet. And it just praises God that your body's working properly and thank God for the relief that's brought. I feel much better. Hallelujah. <laughs> now, you see, to us that's very unspiritual and I go into some Christian loos that really are plastered with devotional texts and have a pile of devotional books by the seat, you know? Everything to take my mind off what I'm doing and on to spiritual things. But for the Hebrew, he prays God for his body. And when you get old and incontinent, you'll wish you'd praise God when your body was working properly. See? That's Hebrew thinking. And you get the body in right understanding, the temple of the Holy Spirit. And the church is the body of Christ. It's all body, 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 do you see? So actually what you do with your body, the length of your hair, is part of your spirituality. See, it's not something that's unconnected with your soul. You're worshipping God with your body. And so all the way through we find this Greek wrong attitude to the body causing them problems. And of course spiritual gifts, because many evangelicals are Greek in their thinking, they can't cope with spiritual gifts that affect the body and feel that worship should be all inward, you know. I mean, worshiping God with your body, that's, that's not on. Lifting up your hands, weird. You should worship with your soul. You see how it comes? Tongues is something that happens to your body. It's something outward. But we've got so Greek that everything has to be inward and spiritual. Do you know what I mean? Doing something with your body to worship is not spiritual. Yes, it is. It is for Hebrews. The Hebrews lifted up their hands to God. They danced before the Lord. For them, the body was to be offered to God, but we prefer to stand, you know. The only part of the body we're allowed to use is the mouth. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> but you see, your body, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That's the whole emphasis in Corinthians. Well, spiritual gifts are bodily gifts, miracles. Healing is a bodily gift. Oh, it's not very spiritual, is it? Because it's doing things to people's bodies. Tongues is something happening to your body. It's outward. Well, I just throw that in because you can see all the way through that their basic problem was they didn't really know what to do with their bodies. And they were doing wrong things, right, left and center. So celibacy was considered a higher holiness than marriage. And St. Augustine, I'm afraid, really put the last nail in, in that one. And ever since Augustine, there's been the hidden suspicion that somehow sex is not holy, which is totally un-Hebrew, because every rabbi has to be married. A celibate priesthood is an anathema in Scripture. Do you see? There is a calling, a spiritual gift of celibacy, but that's a different thing. It's not a higher, holier way than the physical act of love. Which brings me to the other major positive principle. They had never really understood what love is. And to this day, unfortunately, the English word love covers a multitude of things, and we have the same problem. When he dealt with spiritual gifts, he thanked God they had spiritual gifts. I mean, most of 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 would be irrelevant in most churches I go to, because they don't even have them. So 
1 Corinthians 13 is wasted on them. It's, it's written. Actually, chapter 12 is about spiritual gifts, and chapter 13 is about spiritual gifts, and chapter 14 is about spiritual gifts. It goes together. And chapter 12 is about spiritual gifts by themselves, chapter 13 is about spiritual gifts without love, and chapter 14 is the true excellent way, spiritual gifts with love. But it's all about spiritual gifts, and there's tongues in chapter 13, though people conveniently ignore that bit. It's all there. But he says the main thing you lack is love. Let's look at some of the Greek words for love. They were much more careful in their vocabulary than we are. We just use love for anything, almost anything. But they had different words for it, and there were three aspects of love that they had which we need to grasp. There was the love which was sexual attraction, to lust, to be physically attracted. But they even had two words for that, one of which was good and one of which was bad. The good word for sexual attraction was eros, a name falsely given to that aluminium statue in Piccadilly Circus, which should actually be called Agape because it's a memorial to Lord Shaftesbury, and it's the Angel of Mercy, not Cupid. But there it is. Everybody knows eros in Piccadilly. Eros, from which we get erotic. And then their bad word was epithumia. That was a dustbin word for the worst kind of lust. Eros is not necessarily a bad word. I just want to point that out, but epithumia really is. And Paul often lists epithumia as the, the wrong sexual attraction, which is just purely promiscuous. And that is based on mutual attraction. Some people attract that in you and some people don't. It is essentially a thing of the flesh, of the body, the shape of the body. It is essentially an emotional love, and it is a dependent love. It's dependent on that object continuing to attract your lust. And as soon as that stops, then you no longer have that for that person. And I'm afraid many marriages, based on that alone, as soon as the attraction goes with age, then the love goes. It is, in a sense, basically sexual love. Then they had another word, Philadelphia, from Philo and Adelphia brother, which means to like someone. It's a word of affection rather than attraction. It's essentially a word of like-mindedness. You know, you have friends that you get on with because you have similar tastes and outlook. It's an affection. It's brotherly love. And it can happen between two men and between, or between two women. By the way, when eros happens, it is between a man and a woman, but epithumia can be between two men and two women, homosexual. But this is an affection. It is essentially a thing of two minds that uh, like each other and have sympathy and empathy with each other. It's therefore essentially a, an intellectual thing. I don't mean by that academic, but I mean a thing of thoughts. And it is interdependent. You depend on each other. Uh, on each other's thoughts and tastes and interests. Then there is this word which the Greeks very rarely used because they hardly ever saw it. And agape love is a love of attention. It's a love that gives attention to people. It is not a love that is attracted by them or a mutual interdependent affection. 
It is a love that simply gives attention, that takes notice of someone. It's therefore primarily an act of the will. You decide to agape someone, someone you notice nobody is caring for. You decide to go and give your attention to them. That can happen in a meeting like this. You know? and some people will be naturally drawn to each other. There'll be Philadelphia here. If there's agape, then somebody may notice that somebody else is on their own and nobody's talked to them. And just they decide they're not particularly attracted to that person, but they just say, nobody's talking to that person. I'll go and talk to them. That's agape. It's a love of attention. And it's a love of the will that you decide to do it. And therefore, alone of all these three, this can be commanded. Thou shalt love. You can't command that kind of love. You can't command, you can't say to two people, you shall like each other. See? And you can't say to a, a man and a woman, you shall fall in love. But you can tell them to agape each other. Do you see? It is therefore a volitional love of the will that can be commanded, that you can command yourself to do, and therefore is quite independent of the person you're loving. The person you're loving doesn't need to be attractive or affectionate or even thankful. You heal the leper whether he says thank you or not because you agape them. Now the Greeks rarely use this word because you rarely find it in people. You find an awful lot of that in the world and you find quite a lot of that. Very little of this, very little. And yet this is the love of God. <laughs> That's not. God doesn't love us because we're attractive, not because we're lovable. He loves us because He loves us, says the Bible. Why does He love the Jews? You find this in the Old Testament, not because they're a great nation, but because God is love. And He chose to care for them, a bunch of slaves whom nobody cared about. God said, I'm going to care. The word care is much nearer agape than the word love. And this was what they lacked. This is a sacrificial, that's a sexual love, this is a social love, this is a sacrificial love that is willing to pay any price to care for someone. Amazing love. And this is the love that God had for us, that while we were yet sinners, God agapeed us. See? And that introduced a new dimension of love and where that is lacking in a church, you will inevitably split a church when spiritual gifts appear. And the reason why so many churches have been divided over charismatic things is precisely the lack of agape. It is not spiritual gifts that divide. It is the lack of agape. Because agape is sacrificial love. Agape doesn't vaunt itself, is not puffed up, does not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not its own. Agape doesn't boast. Agape doesn't say, I've got a gift. Agape doesn't think it's better than anyone else. Agape seeks all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And if you've got agape, you can cope with spiritual gifts. But if you haven't, boy, they're dangerous. See? And maturity is to grow in love. Now abideth faith, hope, and agape. Not faith, hope, and eros, and not faith, hope, and Philadelphia. There are plenty of warm fellowship churches where there's a lot of affection because you've got a lot of like-minded people. You know, they're a religious club of people who have the similar tastes in music and worship. That's not agape. Agape where is where you've got a lot of differences 
and yet you care for each other, and you can live with that. Well, that's just a little exposition of 1 Corinthians 13. Now, I must go back to the whole of uh, 1 Corinthians just to round it off. The, the basic filling of the sandwich is all these problems, and the principles of the body, the principles of love, the principles uh, are to be dug out of this and applied to our problems. But at the beginning and the end of the letter, Paul had to deal with two very fundamental things. The first is they were forgetting the cross because the word of the cross is to the Greeks an offence. Why? Why should a body nailed to a cross bring spiritual salvation? It's the old body thing again. The cross was too bodily for the Greeks. It was a way of salvation that had a body nailed to a tree. They couldn't cope with that, so they forgot it. And the thing is, when you get away from the cross and forget the cross, you start dividing over other things. And Paul says, was Paul crucified for you? Was Apollos crucified for you? Was Peter crucified for you? Why then are you lining up behind a human leader? They didn't die for you. And that's why we have bread and wine regularly, to stay at the cross and keep remembering the crucifixion, that it was Jesus who died for us, not your pastor. We're not following human beings. And you know, in the divisions um, in Corinth, I must mention this, there were those who said, well, we are Paul followers, we are Peter's followers, we are Lutherans, we are Wesleyans, we are... I won't give any modern names, but there are plenty. And then in all that, there was a little group said, we are of Christ. <laughs> and Paul said, that's just as bad. Now, that's an interesting point. You know, I, I'm amused when I go to a huge city like Birmingham will say, now this is not an actual case, believe me, but I go to a huge city like Birmingham and find a little new fellowship calling itself the Birmingham Christian Fellowship, as if there's no Christian fellowship in Birmingham but them, you know? We are of Christ. That is just as bad if you are thinking they have a label, they're denominational, but we are just Christians. You know, you can say that in entirely the wrong spirit. And Paul says, some of you are saying we are of Christ, and that's just as bad as saying we are of Peter if you're using that to distinguish yourself from others for whom Christ died. Never forget the crucifixion. And the end of the letter, they had doubts about the resurrection because they believed as Greeks in the immortality of the soul. What they couldn't cope with was the resurrection of the body. And heaven with a body somehow wouldn't be heaven. And still people, you know, think of dead people as floating around in long white nighties in a kind of, uh, you know, spooky spiritual atmosphere. Listen, our future is to have a new body, a real body that you can handle and touch like this one. I can't wait for my new body. Jesus had a new body after the resurrection that could eat fish and cook breakfast. That's our future. And actually our future is in a whole new earth. And we'll be living on a new earth with new bodies and God will be living on the earth with us. Now that's very difficult for Greek thinking. And so they had doubts about the resurrection. And 1 Corinthians 15 is the very first written record of the witnesses of the resurrection body of Jesus. Once again, the key issue in Corinthians is body, body. Well, I think we must leave 1 Corinthians and rush on to 2 Corinthians.
because I'm afraid I'm not here to take you all through the Bible. We couldn't do that in the time available. What I am here to do is to give you a kind of overview, a taste of a book of the Bible so you'll want to get into it and feel you can understand it. Let's look at 2 Corinthians now. It's the least methodical of his letters and the most personal. It's almost all autobiography. Paul talks about himself from beginning to end. If the first letter is for church members, this is for church leaders and ministers, and every leader in a church should read 2 Corinthians regularly. If 1 Corinthians was what Paul thought about the Corinthians, this is what they thought about him now. And the relationship was bad between the Corinthians and Paul. It went through two phases. Phase number one, this was after he left. This is always a test. What happens after a leader leaves? I got a lovely letter after we left Charlton St. Peter in Buckinghamshire. Dear Lady Rowan said, Dear Pastor, things have been even better since you left. <laughs> and that was such a, a lovely phrase. It could be taken anyway. I thought that's, that's wisdom to put it like that. But what happens when a leader leaves a fellowship? That's the biggest test of his ministry, not what happens while he's there. What happens after he goes? Well, after Paul went, two things happened. The first phase was that they had other leaders who were good. Apollos came. Peter came. So they had other good leaders. And the trouble then was that people began to compare leader with leader and say, well, which do you think preached the best sermons? I like the last minister best, and I like the present minister best, and I like the next minister best. You know, you get everything, don't you? Never compare leader with leader. It is absolutely fatal because none of them was crucified for you. But then in the second phase, they got some bad leaders. Leaders came into Corinth who claimed to be special apostles. Interesting that they used that title. And they said, you really need us. You really need an apostle to cover you. So we've come to be your apostle. The same thing is happening today. And these leaders came and they criticized their predecessors. And to build themselves up, they pushed Paul down. That's always beware of a leader who criticizes his predecessors. Always beware of someone who raised himself by putting others down. And this happens, and it happened at Corinth. And these special apostles came in and took the church over. And what they were saying about Paul was terrible. Now, 2 Corinthians reflects these two phases. The first part of 2 Corinthians reflects the criticisms that were being made of Paul. Uh, let's just go through some of them. Oh, sorry, not so much the first half. 1 Corinthians does reflect some of the comparison of Paul with other leaders, but 2 Corinthians reflects these bad leaders who were not just being compared with Paul, but who were actually putting Paul down officially and saying, they didn't take you far enough, we're the real apostles and we'll, we'll take you the whole way sort of thing. They were accusing Paul of fickleness, of always changing his plans, of being cowardly that he would write rather than visit them, that when he was present he was timid. He was only bold when he wrote letters to them, but when he was present he was very different. They criticized him for not having any testimonials, any accreditation, any letters of recommendation. They came with certificates of, you know, 
university degrees. <laughs> it's called emptying the church by degrees. <laughs> but they came with qualifications that they could frame and put up on the vestry wall. You know the kind of thing? And they said, Paul has no qualifications. He has no letters of recommendation. That's why Paul in 2 Corinthians says, I don't need a letter of recommendation. You are my letter of recommendation. I've written my ministry on you. And that tells us the acid test of a man's ministry is not his academic qualifications or his training, but the kind of people he produces. That's the test of any man's ministry. They accused him of being secretive and less than frank. They accused him of being distant, aloof, unfeeling, uncaring. Do you remember Thessalonica? Same kind of criticisms came up. They accused him of not being a polished speaker. That's easy enough to do. I remember a Hyde Park Corner man getting up on a soapbox and he couldn't, he, he didn't know the letter H was in the alphabet and he couldn't string his words together. His grammar was dreadful. And two university students stopped to criticize him and they said, listen to his grammar, isn't that dreadful? But one of those students was converted and became a great minister, a very famous minister whose name you'd know. And it was the man's bad grammar that drew him <laughs> out of criticism. But you see, it's easy to criticize a person for not being a polished speaker. And you know, the worst thing they said about Paul, would you believe it? They said, and he doesn't charge a fee. <laughs> and they said, that proves that he's not a good speaker. Because if he was a good speaker, he could charge a fat fee. And of course, in Greece, the entertainment was not television, it was traveling philosophers. And uh, the bigger the fee you could charge, you know, Mrs. Thatcher's after-dinner fee and all the rest of it, the bigger the fee you could charge, the greater your reputation as a speaker. Well, Paul doesn't charge fees, so he can't be very good. He has to, you know, <laughs> he has to offer himself free or nobody would have him. They actually said that. And he meets all these criticisms and he defends himself in a very sincere and tender appeal. The first seven chapters are, are Paul's heart laid bare. The sincerity of those chapters, he said, of course I didn't charge a fee. I wanted you to get the gospel free. And he says, every man's work will be tested, whether it's hay, straw, stubble, or precious stones. He said, I tell everybody who follows me, be careful how you build. I laid the foundation, which is Jesus, and what you build on it will be tested, and some of your work will be burnt up and there'll be nothing left of it. Tremendous passion in this letter. His heart is laid bare and he says, no, I was open with you. Oh, you say I'm timid when I'm with you. Was I when I came on that second visit? I was not. And it's, it, it's just pouring out a defense of himself. Some of his greatest statements are in this second letter. I wonder if I could just find quickly one or two. Here's one. He says, we are handicapped on all sides, but we are never frustrated. We are puzzled, but never in despair. We are persecuted, but we never have to stand it alone. We may be knocked down, but we're never knocked out. What a statement that is, isn't it? Here's another. Some of the most precious words for Christian ministers are here. Listen to this. 
As far as we are concerned, he says, we don't wish to stand in anyone's way, nor do we wish to bring discredit on the ministry God has given us. Indeed, we want to prove ourselves genuine ministers of God, whatever we have to go through, patient endurance of troubles or even disasters, being flogged or imprisoned, being mobbed, having to work like slaves, having to go without food or sleep. All this we want to meet with sincerity, insight and patience, with genuine love, speaking the plain truth and living by the power of God. Our sole defence, our only weapon, is a life of integrity. Whether we meet honour or dishonour, praise or blame, called impostors, we must be true. Called nobodies, we must be in the public eye. Never far from death, yet here we are alive, always going through it, but never going under. We know sorrow, yet our joy is inexpressible. We have nothing to bless ourselves with, yet we bless many others with true riches. We are penniless, and yet in reality we have everything worth having. These are magnificent statements. Can't read them without being moved. He's defending himself. He will not have lies spread about his ministry. Well, that's chapters 1 to 7. But by comparison with chapters 1 to 7, the chapter 10 to 13 are extraordinarily different. Instead of defending himself, he now attacks others. And it is a very tough accusation. He resorts to irony and sarcasm because now he's dealing with these false apostles who've come in and taken over to the detriment of the fellowship. And far from being tender, I mean, the words I read to you are very tender words, but now he really gets tough. And uh, again, I think the best thing is if I read some to you because then you catch the different focus. Let's just read this. I wish you could put up with a little of my foolishness. Please try. My jealousy over you is the right sort of jealousy, for in my eyes you are like a fresh, unspoiled girl whom I am presenting as fiancée to your true husband, Christ himself. I am afraid that your minds have been seduced from a single-hearted devotion to him by the same subtle means that the serpent used towards Eve. For apparently, you cheerfully accept a man who comes to you preaching a different Jesus from the one we told you about, and you readily receive a spirit and a gospel quite different from the ones you originally accepted. Yet I cannot believe I am in the least inferior to these extra-special apostles. Perhaps I am not a polished speaker, but I do know what I'm talking about, and both what I am and what I say is pretty familiar to you. Perhaps I made a mistake in cheapening myself, though I did it to help you, by preaching the gospel without charging a fee. As a matter of fact, I was only able to do this by robbing other churches, for it was what they paid me that made it possible for me to minister to you free of charge. Even when I was with you and very hard up, I didn't bother any of you. Does this mean that I don't love you? God knows it doesn't but I am determined to maintain this boast so as to cut the ground from under the feet of those who profess to be special apostles on the same terms as I am. Special apostles? They are counterfeits of the real thing, dishonest practitioners, apostles only by their own appointment. 
nor do their tactics surprise me when I consider how Satan masquerades as an angel of light. It's to be expected that his agents will have the appearance of ministers of righteousness, but they will get their deserts one day. Once more, let me advise you not to look upon me as a fool, yet if you do, then listen to what this fool has to boast about. I'm not speaking as the Lord commands me now, but as a fool who must be in on this business of boasting, and since all the others are so proud of themselves, let me do a little boasting as well. From your heights of superior wisdom, I'm sure you can smile tolerantly on a fool. Oh, you're tolerant all right. You don't mind, do you, if a man takes away your liberty, spends your money, makes a fool of you, or even smacks your face? I'm almost ashamed to say that I never did such brave things like that. <laughs> Yet in whatever particular they enjoy such confidence, speaking as a fool, remember, I have as much confidence. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I've got more claim to the title than they. This is a silly game. But look at my list. I've worked harder than any of them. I've served more prison sentences. I've been beaten times without number. I've faced death again and again. I've been beaten with the regulation 39 stripes by the Jews five times. I've been beaten with what rods three times. I've been stoned once, shipwrecked three times. I've been 24 hours in the open sea. In my travels, I've been in constant danger from rivers and floods, from bandits, from my own countrymen, from pagans. I've faced danger in city streets, danger in the desert, danger on the high seas, danger among false Christians. I've known exhaustion pain, lonely vigils, hunger and thirst, doing without meals, cold and lack of clothing. And apart from all external trials, I have the daily burden of responsibility for all the churches. Do you think anyone is weak without my feeling his weakness? Do you think anyone has his faith upset without my longing to restore him? Oh, if I'm going to boast, let me boast of all the things I was not clever enough to dodge. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ knows I'm speaking the truth. You've got to read it aloud, haven't you? The passion of it. The man is saying, these false apostles, I accuse them. I defend myself. He's doing it for the sake of this church, for the sake of the gospel. The second Corinthians is also a sandwich, and in the middle he says, now the collection. Which is what people tend to say, but Paul had a real heart for famine relief, and I think he thought like this. He thought, if I can get these Corinthians to turn their attention away from themselves and to start caring for others, that's going to help. So he stuck in an appeal for his famine relief fund in the middle. And that section 8 to 9 contains some wonderful teaching about Christian giving. And if you want to teach your people to give, use those two middle chapters of 2 Corinthians. Well, those are Paul's letters to Corinth. The first is dealing with their problems. The second is dealing with his problem with them, with that odious comparison with other good leaders, and then even more with those bad leaders who've come in and taken the place over and are lifting themselves up by putting Paul down. Paul will have none of that. And I underline that he is not, he is not saying all this about himself to defend his own reputation, but to defend the gospel for which he stands. Because if people 
want to avoid the message, then they attack the messenger. And that's a very subtle way of undoing the good that the gospel does. Well, go and read both letters and uh, read them aloud so that you get the tone of voice. Don't read them in a churchy voice. Read them from the heart and they come home very powerfully to us today. You have been listening to David Pawson's Unlocking the Bible. Visual materials featured in this talk and other free resources like this can be found online at davidpawson.org.